0: Now, Rock Talk
1: with Mitch LaFawn. On uh, three, two, one. Uh, welcome to uh, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on the phone is, of course, uh, co-host Alan Niven, and we are joined by, and I'll say this in French, Cherie Curie, the one and only uh, Cherie Curie. Uh, bonjour, both of you. How are you? Terrific.
0: Thanks so much, Mitch and Alan. Very nice to talk to you both.
1: Yes, so uh, I, I, I do to want to talk with you, too. See, I'm, I'm so excited. This is my fifth interview today. I'm so cranked up by now, but uh, I, just, I just wanted to say the, the new video that you've put out with Susie Quattro and Nick Gilder, this, this, ver, this lockdown version of Roxy Roller from uh, Boulevards of Splendor, terrific video. Uh, just uh, talk to me a little bit about that.
0: Well, you know, um, with my album, Boulevard to Splendor, being released, which was really such a surprise, it had been, you know, sitting on a shelf for a decade, uh, the first, you know, we were talking about everybody was doing these quarantine videos, and Roxy Roller was the, was the first one to come to mind for me, and my son and I just sat down in front of a camera, and he plugged direct into his system, so I just sang to you know an acoustic electric and that was just a pass through and then we sent it on to um susie and to nick and then also to phil levitt and of course nick mayberry and phil brought on a joey uh from seven horse and from dada and you know what it just it just went from there we built on that one pass that my son and I did in his studio and it just turned into something so great. And then Isaac, who is a 17 year old, uh, really terrific video, uh, editor. He had come to my, um, page with a video that, uh, of Queens of noise. that just took my breath away. And I, I asked him if he wanted to be the editor for this. And the kid just blew everybody's mind. It, really was was such an easy thing to do and for nick to come out of retirement kind of you know to be a part of it it's just spectacular
1: it it really is and, and you gotta love nick gilder a famous canadian uh, alan i'll uh I'll, I'll defer to you and then we'll talk a little bit about Susie quattro because she's of course in this video and she's got this new documentary coming out uh, later this month but alan uh the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Actually, it's uh, Madam Curie's. Um, but I, I was curious
2: because uh, obviously I, I was living in L.A. for 13 years. And obviously at some point my path crossed uh, um, Kim Fowley. I was always intrigued. He always talked about himself in the third person. He always talked about Kim rather than himself. Um interesting character
0: truly brilliant and you know i was i was very blessed i truly was that i helped take care of him towards the end of his life now i hated that man i mean i hated him with a passion for decades and i just came to the realization that that really hurt me so much worse than 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 how that could he could it couldn't possibly hurt him i just Plus, becoming a mother myself and growing up, I really had to look at the situation when we were in the runaways and how difficult for a guy that had a really difficult upbringing, really not any love from his parents, never been a father. How did he do it? How did he manage these five teenage girls that were just really coming of it, just becoming women on top of it and throwing us into this business that was mainly male. Um, you know, he tried to toughen us up, but I, I, I saw him at a party about, uh, 12, 13 years ago. And just this overwhelming feeling came over me that I had to stop with this anger and, and, uh, and ask to talk to him. And we, we ended up spending hours on the phone and he cried. I mean, he, he, he felt very bad. You know that that he couldn't have been more considerate, but you know Kim is Kim. And then when he reached out to me when he was dying, and I moved him into my house and got to take care of him twenty four seven for a period of time was the best thing that I've ever done. Because let me tell you, I love that man and I miss him. And the and the music industry lost a true talent but it just goes to show Sherry, that,
2: that forgiveness. Sherry, that, that, Sherry, that's absolutely fabulous. I love hearing that, and I love the fact that you have that clear comprehension that anger that we carry hurts us, not the people we're angry with. Oh. But that's that's fabulous to hear that.
0: Well, you know what? Had I not done that, I would not be the person I am today. And, I mean, it was a true gift. And And to love and miss someone that I had hated for so many years. And to really, I mean, you have to look at all sides of a situation. You just can't be, you can't walk around life with these blinders on. And guess what? We all make mistakes. We're human beings for crying out loud. You know, um, I miss him. I'm actually tearing up. I really miss him.
2: Did you do counseling, Sherry? Do you do counseling?
0: I used to. I was, uh, I was, um, a counselor for drug addicted teens back in the eighties, uh, which is was part of my recovery. Uh, but but one thing I do know in my heart, and I think that comes from age, and it comes from being an observer more than just a, a mouth, is that there's there's always different sides to to every story. It isn't black and white you know, even like today with the riots and the police being put down so much. I mean, you know what I would advocate for, you know, these, these police officers to be able to get some help, you know, PTSD. I mean, you know, there's when you're, when you, when you have to live in fear all the time, I mean, you get up and you approach a car, you don't know if that person's going to kill you right then. I mean, just like, you know they want they want to defund the police they want to remove their riot gear well you know what we don't send our our troops into into war without bulletproof vests and everything to protect themselves i mean you know what none of us can understand what these policemen deal with on a daily basis i mean it's so easy to judge you know look i was kidnapped i was kidnapped as a as a young kid by a murderer I, I'm, I was very lucky to survive. I shouldn't have. Wow. But, you know, the thing is, is I know what it's like to be truly afraid, truly afraid for your life for, for hours and hours on end. And these cops, you know what? They're human. They're human beings. People forget. These are not robots that are walking around on these streets. These are people that want have a family that they want to be able to go home to. So, I mean, either we
2: look at the whole situation as a whole. Yes. Sherry, Sherry, you're absolutely dead on, but it's worse than that. An awful lot of these guys in blue uniforms have worn camouflage before and been put into dreadful situations overseas, you know, for the benefit of corporations. Um, It's no wonder that.
0: Very true. I mean, most most of our military will go in, will go uh, and become, you know, one of our fellows, one of our, you know, protectors in blue. Uh, You know, it's um, and, you know, my father died of alcoholism at 62. He was a sergeant, a paratrooper in the Marine Corps in World War Two. There was no PTSD then. There was no help for him. He drank himself to death. And one of the great, yeah, I... courageous men, well-decorated. You know, this, is, this, is, this, this has to not just be about Black Lives Matter entirely. Look, I understand a lot. I mean, police killed more white people last year than they did blacks. But the thing is, is that we need to have an awakening that all people are human. And you know what? I certainly don't want to not have a police force. I'll tell you. Um, I don't. I don't want that. I want people to be able to be compassionate for all, including our men and women in blue, and for our for our wonderful vets and for our soldiers. I think that they have been they've gotten a bad shake for a long time. Um, so anyway, it, it, we should
1: get back to music, in, eh? You, we should probably yeah, get back to music. Uh, uh, if, well, if, I can bring you back. Okay. I can bring you back. Barry.
2: Go ahead. Um, one, of, one of my perceptions over the years was that uh, in dealing with a lot of bands and my own desire to be um, involved in music, producing, writing, whatever, but was, I realized that virtually everybody I knew in a band came from what, and this was an overused word some time ago, but it's, it's apt. They came from dysfunctional backgrounds and dysfunctional homes. And the process of putting a band together was almost like trying to put your perfect little family together. And yet every member in that band brought with them the dysfunctional baggage of their past. So inevitably, at some point, it all explodes. Um, uh-huh. It's, it's it's an interesting interesting perception but uh, tell me about Susie Clacho what does Susie Clacho mean to you
1: yeah well let's get back to susie and by the way uh, alan you might not know this i did an interview with uh, sharia before and uh, we talked about my daughter and she sent me this gift pack for my daughter and that was the sweetest thing uh somebody's ever done so just real quick uh, thank you for that i gave that to to jade and she she was thrilled she got the book and a couple of other knickknacks you threw in there and just thank you for that, and, uh, you know, absolutely adorable. But
0: Oh, that's my pleasure, Mitch, my pleasure. And and you know what? Support. That's another thing. You know, support is what we need. Unfortunately, the Runaways did not have that. We had nobody to turn to when there was infighting. We had no mediator. We were too young. Um, you know, it was a time we went on the road by ourselves with just a roadie and uh Sometimes a yeah a a manager that was screwing all of us, uh, literally. Um, besides being screwed out you, of our minds, I saw you in
2: nineteen. I saw you in nineteen seventy-seven at the Roundhouse, and you were a bunch of kids.
0: Well, you know, you I, let, let me just say, my Do you remember my son, london in son 1977? Jake. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I was 16 years old and my son, Jake, when he was 16, he wanted to go on tour with his cousin, Trevor Lukather, Steve Lukather and my twin sister's son, Trevor. And I said, how would you like your no, fast or slow? It ain't going to (laughs) happen. And I mean, but I did end up taking him with me on, uh, several tours that I did. And, Mm -hmm. By the time he had come off tour with me, he was well seasoned, and then he went on tour with his band and did very well. You know, but the thing is, is that uh, I was going to make sure that he was going to, to, to have some protection. Uh, we did not have that, but anyway, you know, mm. um, it was a different time, different space, completely different. So, uh, but with Susie Quattro i bought her first album uh when i was 13 years old i saved my my allowance money uh i saw her open for alice cooper at the forum um and and let me tell you she was a catalyst in the Runaways. there would not have been a joan jet without a Susie quattro joan was too young to know who she was she was joan was very very insecure you know, I was as well. So I took on the persona of David Bowie. Joan took on the persona of um, of, of Susie Quattro. Lita was into Richie Blackmore. You Look, we had to fake it till we made it. And that's what we did. Right. And, you know, I mean, we didn't even have enough time to figure out. I mean, we <laughs> we were... We were wondering we were, where we were going to get money for Tampax, you know, when we were on the road. Oh, good God. It just, you know, it's just, it was just a different time, and, and we were out there, but we did believe. We believed in a cause. We believed in ourselves, and, um, and you know, we did our very best. But unfortunately, without the right kind of support with Somebody to mediate, uh, it imploded, and that's just what happened. And drugs did not help. I mean, uh, you know, dr- well, if you didn't do drugs, sherry, uh, there was something wrong with you, it seemed.
2: Sherry, a tip of the cap. Um, obviously, when I went to the Roundhouse to see the band, I was very curious. And, you know, obviously I knew knew about uh, Susie Quatro in those days and Can the Can. And, and that was intriguing because here was somebody who was obviously attractive female dressed in leather all the superficial little buttons are being pushed but what what really intrigued me was there she was wielding a massive bass and on top of that she had a genuine rock and roll phrasing to her vocals so when i went to see the runaways i wanted to see is this a real band or is this a marketing ploy? and when i went away from the roundhouse that night i went this is going to be interesting because this is a band that definitely has the attitude. Now let's see where it goes from here. I mean, this is definitely not, uh, you know, a bunch of girls in uh, primrose frock singing both sides now. Um, but you guys had the attitude.
0: Well, Absolutely. yes, we we, we, we we had to. I mean, Kim, Kim made sure to toughen us up. And again, we also had Kenny Ortega from the tubes who went on to become quite a director as well. He's, he's a wonderful choreographer. He choreographed our shows, uh, you know, plus we were in the middle of, you know, when Elton John or David Bowie, it was a, you know, uh, Alice Cooper, it was very theatrical. So there were costume changes, things like that. I mean, <laughs> very dialed down version of, of, you know, what was going on around us with these huge, concerts with these which was all about taking a trip you know uh, mm. we did our very very best with our meager means uh, you know in our five dollar a day you um, money that we would get to, to buy the tampacks or buy cigarettes or whatever. Back then cigarettes I were <laughs> like, I don't know, a, a 50 cents a pack or whatever it was. But, uh, you know, we, it was rough. I mean, we, we just went from town to town. I, our first tour was over three months long. I didn't think I'd ever come home, but you know what? We, we believed in what we were doing and i'm so glad that people appreciate that now but uh, you know going back to susie quattro uh again i mean she really this little tiny thing just pulled this enormous gate open all by herself and then us girls just kind of you know skipped through and thing just kind of kicked this little door that was all it took uh, but Susie really did so much for us. She needs to be in the she needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and until she is, I will never take that institution seriously.
2: I, well, I, I agree can't with take that. that institution seriously anyway. But I thoroughly agree with you, Cherie.
1: Yeah, and so let, let us uh, let me get over to the interview with uh, with Susie Q or Cherie. Uh, absolute pleasure again. And I will remind folks that you do have uh, the album Motivator with Brie Howard Darling, where they cover all kinds of great stuff, including Give Me Shelter and so on. A fabulous album. By the way, are you doing another album with with Brie at any time soon?
0: Well, right now, my album "Boulevards of Splendor was released on Blackheart. It's doing exceptionally well. Those are more my roots. Okay. Um, that was the album that I went and toured on in 2013, 14, 15 and 16, hoping to kind of push Blackheart's hand a little bit to get them to release that record. But it didn't come out till now. But you know what? It's just getting grave reviews. So I'm definitely going to tour on that album. That is for sure. I have to do it because that. That album is spectacular.
1: It really is, and uh, on that, uh, here is uh, Susie Q. On three, two, one, uh, we are speaking with uh, Susie Quattro. The new documentary is a uh, Susie Q. Uh, Susie, absolute pleasure to uh, to talk to you. And as we say in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Oh,
3: bonjour. <laughs> How are you? And, and do you speak French?
1: Bien sûr. Uh, you have to when you live in Montreal. You you have to be bilingual and by bi everything you have to you have to know everything but uh, uh,
3: oh not bisexual
1: <laughs> well you don't have to be no and no, but, but it uh,
3: helps okay? uh, i
1: guess it could <laughs> i don't know i i'm uh, i'm happily married for over 20 years so i haven't uh, gone down that road yet but uh yeah <laughs> uh but yeah we do we do speak french here but okay let's let's talk about this movie i've I've had a chance to see it and as i was saying just before we started recording i find it to be exceptionally compelling and exceptionally gritty it's not one of these movies where they they polish everything up and oh everybody lives happily ever after it's it's real uh talk to me about this movie and and the process of having it made and and telling your story
3: yes i will tell you my story i am a very uh as you can see from the documentary i'm just a very open honest person um when this director approached me about four years ago now, and he said he wanted to make a documentary, and I said, "Right, you tell me a little bit about yourself." And he said, uh, "Well, I got to tell you straight off, I'm not a fan." And I went, "Okay, fine." And then he said, "He said it's it's not that I'm I don't like your music. I do. I'm not a fan. Fan. I thought I like this guy's approach." So then we got talking, and I said, "Okay, I've always wanted to do a documentary, but one thing I insist on." and uh, and we managed to do it. I said, I don't want a documentary with people sitting there telling you how wonderful I am. That's not what I'm interested in. I've had a life, I've had an interesting life. I had my ups, I had my downs. Um, everything hasn't been wonderful, you know. There's been tears, there's been laughter, there's been everything. I want the truth, and I said, even though I had editing scissors in my contract, I said to him, as long as it's true, It stays in, even if it's cringing. And I had times when I was watching it with people in the cinema, when I was growing up for my question and answers, um, where I wanted to crawl out of the theater on my hands and knees. But those moments are the best moments in the film.
1: I agree. I agree. And by the way, maybe he wasn't a fan, but last night I was talking to former Guns N' Roses manager, Alan Niven, and I said, I'm talking to Susie tomorrow. And he says, oh, please tell her, Can the Can changed my life. So there you go.
3: Oh, oh isn't that nice? Yes, yes. But, but that's very nice. But but we did manage to do what I wanted to do, and um, it, it's not easy when you see your life up on the big screen with an audience watching it, with the good and the bad. But but it's so it is compelling. You're right. I cry every time I see the film. I cry at the sad bits and I cry at the happy bits. You know, like um, when when you get. Some people like Debbie Harry, you know, and Alice, you know, and and saying these things. And I'm in tears because I'm I'm looking at the screen thinking, I did that. (laughs) I did all that. You know, you tend to forget how much you've done in 55 years. God.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So let me start off with with some of the good. Let me take you back to 1964. Okay. and, And your father hands you a 1957 Fender Precision. Talk to me about that moment, because that one seems to be the one that set you on this course. First of all, you know, you know, why is a dad giving a 14-year-old girl a bass guitar? But at the end of the day, here we are all these years later. Talk to me about that, that moment.
3: Oh, God, that was such a moment. Um, we had watched The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show, and um, we all got on the phone. One of my sisters, you know, there's like five in the family. I have three sisters, but one of them and me and two other sisters and another girl who's funny enough. Her dad plays uh, and he played in my dad's band. It's crazy. Uh, Anyway, we got talking and we said, oh, don't you know, I think one of the girls said, why don't we start an our girl band? And that idea caught on. We're all on different extensions. And to be quite honest, everybody chose an instrument very quick. And for once in my life, I didn't speak up quick enough. And I already played percussion, and I already played classical piano. It's so funny. I learned to read and write and play. And um, my sister said, oh, you're going to play the bass. And I thought, okay, that's fine. Percussion and piano, they're both percussion instruments. And then I went to my dad and I said, I'm going to play bass in this band. Do you have one? And he gave me the Rolls-Royce of bass guitars. I mean, musicians get green when I tell them. And when I put it on, as you can see in the movie, and Everybody tells me this. It looks like I was born with a bass guitar. It is a natural instrument for me. It's a real good fit. I don't know why. I'm just, I'm just percussive minded, you know. I never went to guitar and then picked up the bass. I'm not a failed guitar player. I am a bass player. Can I emphasize that?
1: Yeah, you can. And and in your uh, in your book, uh, Unzipped, you famously said that uh, your offer to uh, give remedial uh, bass lessons to Gene Simmons of Kiss. All applause. <laughs> He didn't laugh when I said that, but I thought it was very amusing. <laughs> well, you know, listen, I, I'm a huge Kiss fan and my desktop here has a picture of Kiss staring back at me. So I find that absolutely uh, adorable, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, OK, so talk to me about then the, the beginning with, with your sisters and, and with the family members in a band. Because you've always sort of had a family unit thing going on in your groups. You know, eventually you have your husband in the band. You have, you know, there's, there's always been this sort of the band is home in a sense. Uh, talk to me about starting off with, with the sisters.
3: Yes, you're right. You're right about that. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me about that. It, it just was a natural progression because... I come from a musical family anyway. My father plays, you know, my my brother plays. We all, all five kids learned various instruments. It's not not anything to brag about being a multi-instrumentalist in this family because we all learned. Um, And it just felt natural because I'd spent my life watching my dad play. My brother played with my dad. Then I got to play bongos with my dad. Then we started the band. One sister was in, then another sister was in, and as you and and it was just the way it is. It was always my life. Music was always my life. And then when I came to England, I fell in love with my guitar player, who I let join the band. I I hired him, you know, um, and 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 I did the last album, No Control, written and produced with my son. Uh, my son had a problem with it with, with no control for just at the beginning. He said, this is strange. You know, this is strange. I'm in the studio with Susie Quattro and I said, yeah. And he called me up. He said, we had a real problem with it. And I said, well, I don't, I said, you're just not used to the family dynamics here. Get
1: used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And he got used to it. Uh, a few years ago you released the, uh, the book unzipped, uh, for those of you or for those who've read the book and haven't seen the movie, how is it different? You know, it's not a retelling of this autobiography, I would imagine. So what is the sort of the difference between the two visions of Susie Crotrow, between the movie and the book? Um,
3: well, because, the, because of the nature of a documentary, you get a lot of other people giving their opinions of you, giving their vision of you. Uh, and then you get the rounded view, how the audience sees you, how your peers see you, and how you see yourself. The story kind of tells itself. When you're doing an autobiography, it's you going internal and remembering everything. So it's a, different, it's a different approach. And I'm now working, by the way, on the movie of my life, or just doing the script as I speak. This documentary is called Such a Storm that I've signed to do a movie which is just brilliant and that will of course be different again because then you'll be a little bit hollywood you know but the documentary i wanted to be the
1: truth same as my book same as my book same as the book and it comes out great so all right let's go back to the to the early days you know the late 60s early 70s here you are a, a sort of punk or proto punk girl doing playing the bass guitar singing being out front how difficult was it for you at that time to get noticed and to get ahead? I mean, we, we've got the Mick Jaggers and the Robert Plants and, and the Ozzy Osbournes and all these, you know, very powerful male fronted bands. Um, was it more challenging to be a strong female uh, presence or, you know, did the, the the record companies just sort of look at you and go, eh, she's a cute girl? Eh. You know, what What was the attitude?
3: Um I was lucky in, in, in the fact that I was raised in that kind of family, first of all. And my dad always instilled in me, in me, it seemed to go in me more than the others. He instilled in me the absolute uh, surety that I do what I do and gender doesn't matter. I don't actually do gender. I never have. Um, so I didn't put, you know, I, I have I have the theory that what you put out is what you give back. That, that's how I feel about life. So I put out, hey, I'm confident. I'm a bass player. This is what I do. Respect me. And they did. I did not find it difficult. I think um, it says in the documentary I got fed up waiting. I didn't get fed up waiting. And I didn't even mind if it was all girls in the band. I never really cared like some of the other girls did. I just wanted to make it. And I always was waiting, to be honest, for the tap on the shoulder. I always was waiting for it, and it eventually came. It came twice in one week, one from Elektra, one from Mickey Mouse. you know I could have stayed in New York did i I, I think I went away from your question
1: <laughs> well, it's okay, but okay so you but you did mention a quote from the documentary, so I'll, I'll take that up with another quote. Uh, one of the first things that folks will see in the documentary is uh, a clip of you on t v and you say I gave up most of my early life to make it. Is that a sentiment of Empowerment is that a sentiment of regret? Uh, talk to me about that and the sacrifices you have to make cuz you know fans have this perception that being a rock star is all glamorous and it's all parties and it's sex drugs rock and roll. But I know musicians and you're away from your dog for 9 months. You're away from your cat for 9 months. You're away from the kids for you don't see the first baseball game. You don't see the first recital. Um talk to me about what you gave up and and and, and is that quote um regret or or empowering that yeah you know what i i gave it up because i i had to do this
3: i think it's um not regret um uh, not, not regret as such more of a case of unavoidable you know you have things that are unavoidable and it calls you and this is more than a career it's a calling but saying that growing up in the nice family that i did you know you know, four siblings and uh, great neighborhood and lots of, lots and lots and lots of fun. I did give that up, I gave it up willingly, but there will always be that little longing, that little longing for the little girl. There, there will always be that, yes. But I didn't have a choice. This industry that I'm in, this entertainment bug, this music, it came up and bit me on the ass and I had no choice. I could not not do what I did, but not every person is like that. But the ones that make it and continue to have success, they are exactly like what I just described. You know, you got to go and, you know, you got to give it one zillion percent, 24 hours a day. And that's what you give up. You give you give up normal.
1: Yeah, you do. Uh, okay, and so so let's look at some of the things you you gave up. Uh, you know, Mickey Most comes over and sees you and says, "I, I want to take you back to to the UK." Uh, you give up, mom. Uh, you give up your sister because she was in a band with you, Patty. Uh, talk to me about those moments. W- w- was that also just part of? Listen, it's got to be done, or was there moments of great? Sadness going, I can't believe I left my mom. She's not going to see me. She, I'm not going to be able to come over for Sunday dinner. To, uh, talk to me about leaving you know, mom and sister and the rest of the family behind and, and making that move.
3: Well, like I said, it was my shot. Um, Elektra Records had been to see the band, and I got offered a solo contract and go to New York. Mickey most the same week saw the band, offered me a solo contract. Um, I, I didn't have any qualms, professionally about what I had to do. I knew it was my time to move on. I knew this and I knew that I was gonna miss everybody and I absolutely did. But it is a, like like the same thing you said, do I regret? I don't regret at all. This was my shot, this is what I always worked for and I was going. Um, I knew it was gonna be lonely, I knew it was gonna be hard. Sure, I missed everybody, I missed everybody, terrible. But really, it's the price. This is the price cost of fame. They talk about it. There is a
1: price. Oh, there absolutely is. You, you lose your privacy. You lose, you lose everything. So Mickey Mouse comes out and sees you. Now, you know, Detroit at the time, we have Bob Seeker, Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, Grand Funk. Uh, you know, Kiss is making their way there, even if they're not from Detroit. What was it about you that he saw that he said, I got to have her? You know, talk to me a little bit. You know, be a little, you know, sell yourself if you want. But talk to what was it where you just that good? Were you just that cute? Were you just not to be disparaging, you know what I mean? But what was it that he saw that he just goes, I have to have her?
3: I will use the word that Mickey always used for me from the whole time he was alive. He always said, what you are is unique. You are a one-off. I never saw anybody before like you, and I've never seen anybody since like you. That's how Mickey put it. Um, I was kind of a little bit of a backseat in Cradle, which was the band Mickey saw. We had brought my little sister in. She was more lead singing instead of me doing everything, which I did in the Pledger Seekers. I sang 99.9% of the songs. I was the front person, the whole thing. We went a little bit heavier and brought my little sister in. She was younger. She had more of that vibe, you know, and um, I just went up. I went up and did two songs. I did one I wrote called Brain Confusion, and then I went into Jar House Rock, sang lead and played the bass, went back and Mickey said, it's you. It's you. Look at you. Boom. He said, I stuck out like a
1: sore thumb. A, a very good sore thumb. Uh, um, l- let me talk about, and oh, I, I see that uh, Toby was your representative for a while. That's good. I love in,
3: in America, Toby was my press agent for quite some time.
1: Oh, I love Toby. Um, let me just quickly move over because you, you know the the career is going, the albums are coming out, can the can everything is going well, there's, you're charting, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to go do some television. And of course, the the famous one is Happy Days. Talk to me about uh, moving into television and eventually radio hosting. And was that just sort of expanding the empire? Was it like, ah, uh, I'm tired of rock and roll. I'm going to go into acting. And talk to me about some of the the, the pleasures of making that change, but also some of the the difficulties that it brought to you.
3: I I was never, um, ever, even to this day, tired of rock and roll. It's it's my heart and soul. It's what I do. I do it in my sleep. Uh, I do it naturally. You know, I stand the way I stand. I sound the way I sound. I look the way I look just because that's me. But I never, ever thought that that's all I would do in this profession. Um, I, I like to explain it by saying I'm an artiste, which I am, you know, you just caught me in the middle of, I'm writing songs for the next album right now. Uh, and I always knew I could act, always loved musicals, always liked drama. I always liked to, um, talk on the radio and apparently I have a great radio voice. I've always been told. So when these opportunities presented themselves to me, if I thought I could do it and do it well, I would say, yes, I knew I could act from way back when I probably would have gone into that. If I hadn't gone into rock and roll, I would have been an actress.
1: So when Gary Marshall comes to you then after the happy day stuff and says, hey, we're going to spin this off and give you your own show. Why don't you jump on it? Why do you say, hey, you know what? And yeah, no, I'm it's not for me
3: because I didn't want to be typecast. You know, I mean, I'm Susie Quattro. That's enough of a typecast, you know. Um, I had done Leather Tuscadero for three seasons and I wanted to do other types of roles, and we all know that if you get caught in one thing, then you can't move on. You know, this is who you are. So I've done a nice variety of things, you know, at different different parts I've played. I mean, I did Andy Get Your Gun on stage, for Christ's sake. How yes. how more different can you be? You know, I mean that's Ethel Mormon.
1: And you did the voice on a, on a, on Bob the Builder.
3: Which... I did, I had a very, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which, yeah. which my kids loved. Oh, okay, oh, so so hey. talk to me talk to me about this then, because as a musician, you can get pigeonholed. You know, if you look at a band like acdc they do what they do, and that's acdc And then you look at a band like Madonna or U two they they're ever changing. When you come to making an album, and, and over the years. How did you approach it? Did you say, okay, I got to push the envelope and and redefine what Susie is? Or did you say, oh, no, 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 this is the Susie sound. Let's stay within these confines. Let's not do so. How did you approach it in terms of making music?
3: Um, Each album had its own vibe and its own time. Um, I was more conscious of being of writing and being like Susie Quattro back in the early days, then as you get more comfortable in your skin and things roll through and you're just who you are and you're established, you know, there's not that pressure to only be this way. So you experiment a little bit, you know, um, I did a few different chops and changes. And I mean, if you can't give me a love it's a change for a huge hit stumbling in a big change, huge hit. Um, and then when you're getting a little bit later on, I did back to the drive, which was, Autobiographical because it came right after my my unzip book. Um, I did the one with Andy Scott and Don Powell. Quattro Scott and Powell. That was a collaboration. Um, I did in the spotlight with Mike Chapman, and the last album I did with uh, written and produced with my son called No Control, which was probably the finest album of my career. Rave reviews around the world, and on that one, I didn't push. Anything. I just said to my son, this has to be organic. I don't want to push a song in any direction. What comes, what comes. So I've gotten to that stage, now where I'm not conscious of trying to be Susie Quattro anymore. I just am her, if that makes sense.
1: Well, yeah, of course. Just like uh, Vincent Fernier is Alice Cooper. Uh, Sure. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of making new music, because listen... You could easily go out on tour and say, Susie's coming to town, put your name up on the marquee, and fans would come and they'd want to hear "Can," and they'd want to hear the other songs. And you could get away with 15 minutes, 75, you know, 15 songs, 75 minutes, merci, bonsoir. Why bother going through the process of writing new music and the expense and, and sending files back and forth and getting this guy? Why is it important to stay creative?
3: Oh my God, if I couldn't create, I would die. It's the most important word. I have to entertain, I have to communicate, and I have to create. Um, I'm not done. I, I am never, ever short of ideas for songs. I'm oh, I still have so much more to say. I would never rest on my laurels. Oh, my God, never, never, never. And in fact, every time I go on stage, I never go out there thinking, hey, they're going to love me tonight. I've never done that once in my life. And I'm 55 years in the business. God knows how many shows. My attitude is: I hope they like me tonight.
1: Well, they should. Um, but okay. So, what what makes a song or an album successful for you now? Because you know, in 1972, 1973, it's the chart success. If you're not on Billboard, if you're not on whatever Melody Maker or whatever, they was so a people are like, oh, well, it's not successful. But now, there's got to be a different motivation. It can't be. Oh, I'm not on the top ten. Oh well, this is. Ho- what is the, the what keeps it compelling for you now? In terms of what what is a successful album and a successful song?
3: Well, I I would call, the, like the, like I said, my 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 current album, No Control. That's that's just so close to my heart. Um, in all my career, I never had such saturation press. And I've never read reviews like this in my life. That's so satisfying for the soul. The reviews were just beyond. Each song was dissected, um, praised for for what it was, because there was a lot of variety on the album, but they all sounded like me. Um, I had many journalists quoting my lyrics back to me. Now, if that is not a success, what is?
1: Well, that's true. That's very true. Okay, so let me ask you this uh, in, in terms of success. Mike Chapman, uh, he, he's a songwriter, producer, and to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, he played a huge part in, uh, in your career, producing a lot of the records, helping you write some songs. What does Mike Chapman mean to you? And of course, he's worked with, uh, for folks who might not know, uh, Blondie, the Knack, uh, the Arrows, and uh, God rest the soul of Alan Merrill, who's recently passed away. Oh uh, my! <laughs> yes, yeah, so, sorry. I, I was friends with Alan. We used to email each other, and, and that that news is still still a bit hard to digest for me. But um, what did he mean to you? Because he he really has worked with a lot of people. He's you know Huey Lewis and News, Heart and Soul, uh, Mickey, uh, Tony Basil's Mickey. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about Mike Chapman and, and what he means for you.
3: Well, Mike and I are, uh, we still work together. We're still very, very close friends. I love the man. We have a deep respect and love for each other. Um, we always, from day one, were on the same page. He saw the band, he heard the songs I'd written, he got the vibe, and he wrote me those three minute singles, you know, not all of them, but most of them. Um, he just, he gets me. Mike gets me. That's the only way I can explain it. He gets me and he knows how to get it on record. And he would always just push me that little bit harder when I was doing my vocals, you know. And um, he's great, Mike. He's a talented man. He's a lovely man.
1: Oh, he he absolutely is. Um, and I'll, I'll start wrapping up. And I'll, I'll ask you the question that, that I'm sure you've been asked a million times. But, you know, whatever. Uh, we talked about Detroit back in the time, back in the day it was sort of the epicenter of everything going on. It was it was blue-collar America. It was the auto industry was rock and roll. What was it like being in that scene and being on bills with Alice Cooper and looking over and seeing Ted Nugent and, oh, hey, tonight it's Bob Seger. No, oh, look at that. It's Glenn Frey. Uh, what was that like? And, and why Detroit? Why not San Diego, for crying out loud?
3: No, Detroit had a grit about it. It still does. Uh, I am a very proud of my detroit roots i have eight t t-shirts upstairs um you know all all from detroit it's there's just an energy in that city uh i i I can't describe it you've got your motown which is beyond 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 i'm a motown freak um and then you've got your, your white rock which you mentioned a lot of people there there's it's like no other city in the world maybe it's because it is the black and white, the rich and poor. It creates a certain energy, and you can't duplicate it anywhere else. There's an edge to Detroit. Uh,
1: an incredible edge. Um, and then, of course, in the uh, documentary, we do see a lot of Alice Cooper. Uh, talk to me just a little bit about that relationship with Alice, because, listen, personally, I'm a huge fan of, of Alice Cooper's.
3: Yes, again, we are good friends. Uh, we have known each other since we've been about 15 Um just always got along. I like Alice. He's got beautiful eyes. He's an intelligent man. He's a lovely guy. He'll tell you himself, you know, we had our little moment, you know, where we kissed and it could have been something more than we both decided. No, we want to be friends. Um, I'm happy to say he has been a friend for a very long time. He's very protective of me. me. He calls me his little sister. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you gotta love Alice, and and I'll finish on this. Uh, a lot of bands over the years, or recently, from uh, Kiss to uh, Elton John, have all announced farewell tours, and they're you know on them. Uh, but you look at uh, you know the Chuck Berries of this world and the Mick Jagger's. Where do you see yourself? Is there going to be a Suzy Q farewell tour, or do you just keep going until you can't keep going?
3: I don't know. I haven't got the answer to that. I I foolishly did one in Australia in 2015 because it had been my 50-year anniversary in 2014. And I thought, I've been to Australia 35 times. Let's do the final one there. And it was just amazing. And then I got home, and about three months later, I went, oh, no, what have I done? And I've since done many more tours. I will never, ever be so foolish as to call anything my final. Again, I don't want to call it that. When I'm done, I'm done. I just won't knock on the door anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is, and and you know what? I think a lot of musicians who declare farewell tours from Ozzy, from the Scorpions, from all these bands. I think they they're, they're well intentioned and are and are really at the point where they go, I'm done. But just a, one
3: second. Let me get rid of that call. Stop your machine a second. Yep. Okay. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll let you get to that call in a second. Um, yeah, but but you know, as a creative person. I think you know. Sometimes your body says I, I need to rest, but as a, you can't as a creative person, you've got to create. It's just it you just can't stop. And I think that's that's an important takeaway in all this is that creative persons just need to keep to keep going. And I guess you 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 sense that after Australia too.
3: I I have I I think I'm driven. I think that's the word for me. I'm driven. I always have been. I always will be. Interesting. I did a I started collecting after the documentary came out and started doing all this wonderful, wonderful raves. Even the Financial Time, a five-star review, what? In a rock and roll documentary. Um, I started creating a word cloud, you know, of um, a lot of people I know giving me three words to describe me. And as these words cloud goes, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more frequently used words get bigger, right? And and the one word that is the biggest in the cloud, I don't know if you'll guess it or not. What would you say?
1: The one big word in the cloud? Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's either going to be I or love.
3: It's determined.
1: Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> and 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 on that that that's what we see in the in the movie uh, Susie Q. It is a story of. Determination, uh, and it's it's just absolutely fantastic. And uh, with that, uh, Susie, merci beaucoup, as we say in Montreal. An absolute pleasure to talk to you.
3: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thanks a lot.
1: Merci. Bye bye now. Bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore Lafon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtrackscom
0: Mitch.